0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1592. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you're like me, one of the most demoralizing things is when someone utters the truth and then lamely apologizes. Well, not these folks. I've got a free ebook of stories from heroic professors who told the PC mob to go pound sand. Stories from Jordan Peterson, Michael Rechtenwald, and others. Check it out at againstthemob.com. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. We are starting another one of these theme weeks on The Tom Woods Show, and this week it's Walter Block Week. Now, many of you know Walter already. He may well be the most prolific libertarian alive. In fact, I'm not sure there's anybody who's even in the running for that distinction, given the sheer amount of articles Walter has written, and I, I don't just mean peer-reviewed articles. If I were talking just about peer-reviewed articles, it would be over 600, which, as you know, is absolutely unheard of, not to mention 30-plus books and many, many other things Walter has done. And this week, we're going to have an opportunity to dig into some of Walter's work. And in particular, I want to focus uh, less on economics than on his, let's say, digging deep into libertarian theory to handle some of the more difficult questions and, and frankly, some oddball questions just because they're fun to unpack and see how we apply libertarian thinking to a particular case. Now, in some cases, what I may do is look at, let's say, a fringe case where – and not even a fringe case. Let's say, for example, uh, tomorrow, for instance, I want to talk about the middleman. We're going to talk about a bunch of people in the rogues gallery of American society, people we're not supposed to like. One of them is the middleman because we're taught that the middleman doesn't add any value. Well, that's an area where we can learn some economics as we exonerate the middleman. So we'll be doing some of that too. So it's going to be a great week. And what you're going to learn about Walter is not only that is he a good-hearted guy, you can, you can tell, you, can, you just know it, listening to him, what a good heart he has and how productive he is, but you'll also learn that he explains things extremely well. He takes difficult concepts and makes them very, very clear and easily understood. Today, I want to start with an episode on Walter himself, because here's a guy who was converted to the cause of economic liberty by Ayn Rand herself and her inner circle. I mean, he, he literally spoke to them directly and eventually was converted. So we're going to spend a little time talking about that today. Uh, Walter Block is a professor of economics at Loyola University, New Orleans, And as I've told you, he's got all these other unbelievable credentials and also a senior fellow at the Mises Institute. Walter, welcome back.
1: Thanks, Tom. It's always good to be with you. Uh, Thanks for having me again.
0: Well, this is going to be the best week ever. Walter Block Week on the Tom Woods Show. It's, I don't know, it's like the best idea anyone could ever have. And I want to kick it off with an episode about you, Walter Block, and then We're going to dive right in the next couple of episodes into your books, Defending the Undefendable and Defending the Undefendable 2. So we'll get to those in the middle of the week. But here's our first episode now. And I want to – because there's a story you tell in your life later on about going to a talk, I guess, that Ayn Rand gave and then you hung around and talked to them and all that. I want to get a little bit more detail in that story a little bit later. But first, I want your background. I know you went to high school apparently with Bernie Sanders, but tell me about um, – I don't know anything about your upbringing. I know you were by default a lefty as you got older, but what can you tell us about the making of Walter Block?
1: Well, I was born to Abraham and Ruth Block. Uh, My father was a CPA accountant. My mother was a, a legal stenographer, legal secretary. I have a sister, Eleanor, who is four years younger than me and who is a professor of sociology retired now. I was born in Brooklyn. And um, uh, my first house was uh, near the Hasidic area, uh, Eastern Parkway. And then uh, we moved to uh, Flatbush And um, when I was about seven or eight. And I went to elementary school there and I went to James Madison High School there and then Brooklyn College. And in um, high school, I was a buddy of Bernie Sanders. We were both on the uh, uh, the track team together. We both ran the same distances. We both lived similarly away from Madison High School, so we'd go to school and walk to and from school together sometime. But we never really discussed politics much. It was more uh, girls and sports at that time, although he was into it. I, I didn't even realize until later he was really into the politics. But I was sort of a, a lefty through osmosis because – I don't know, my family is Jewish and in my family, uh, some of the, sort of like Murray Rothbard, half the people, not half, but maybe one third of them were card carrying commies and the others were fellow travelers of communism. I mean, Jewish and, and um uh, non communist is almost like a contradiction. So uh I wasn't really into it that much, but I, I sort of became a vague lefty um uh, and uh, all through high school, and in my first year, in maybe my first two years of Brooklyn College, I majored in philosophy, but not political philosophy. I was more interested in, oh, uh, well, I don't know, other minds and um, uh, God and um, things, you know, um, uh, more basic philosophy things, not uh, political philosophy. And then Ayn Rand came to Brooklyn College to speak, and I think I was a junior or a senior at Brooklyn College and still sort of a, a lefty. And I came. And, to- and what, what were you studying at that point? I was a philosophy major. John Hospers was one of my teachers, uh, but he, he wasn't – he didn't really promote libertarianism. I mean, he was doing more basic philosophy, uh, I don't know, Gilbert Ryle and uh, Wittgenstein and, and Kant and and stuff like that. So he, he didn't really promote liberty, and I didn't even know he was a libertarian. I didn't know what libertarianism was. All I knew that Ayn Rand favored free enterprise. And Free Enterprise was evil because, you know, Free Enterprise meant starving babies and poverty and and rich capitalist pigs and all the rest. And uh, it was a big, big group and uh, maybe 2,000 kids in, in the audience. And I booed and hissed her because, you know, she favored Free Enterprise. And everyone knows Free Enterprise is evil. And then at the end of the thing, they said the Ayn Rand study group or whatever it was that had invited her was having a lunch in her honor and anyone could come even if you disagreed. Well, I didn't get enough booing and hissing in there. So I went and I came to the uh, lunch and Ayn Rand was sitting at the head of the table and um, uh, Brandon was on one side and Peacock on the other and Alan Greenspan, uh, the, the senior collective was um, uh, sitting near her. It was a long table, uh, maybe 50 people on a side, and I was relegated to the foot of the table. That was the only place where there was room. And I turned to my neighbor and I said, you know, this uh, capitalism is evil. Socialism is the way to go. They said, well, you know, I don't really know all that much about it, but the people who do are at the other end of the table. And I was a chutzpahnik in those days, still am, a vestiges of it anyway. And I went and I stuck my head in between Ein's and Nathans. And uh, I was maybe, I don't know, 20 years old and Brandon maybe 35 and ran 50. And I said, you know, there's somebody here who wants to debate someone on socialism and capitalism. And they said, who? And I said, me. And Brandon was very, very nice and gentle with me. He's a really nice guy. And he said, look, uh, there's no room for you at this end of the table, but I'll come to the other end of the table, and I'll talk to you under two conditions. One, you promise not to let the conversation lapse after one session, but we continue this until we settle it. And two, you read two books that I'll recommend. Well, the two books were Atlas Shrugged and uh, Economics in One Lesson by Henry, uh, Henry Hazlitt. And uh, we had our discussion, and I came to his house and Ayn's house in the... Uh, uh, Empire State Building for three or four times. I read those books and by gum and by golly, I I was not a libertarian, nor was I an objectivist because the only part of uh, the Randian uh, objectivist movement that I liked was um, uh, economics. The rest of it, you know, epistemology, metaphysics, aesthetics, and uh, all sorts of other stuff, it didn't really grab me. And they invited me to come to the NBI sessions, which were held in the basement of the um, Empire State Building. And I came and I I sort of was a little schizophrenic. I had an approach avoidance reaction to that. On the one hand, I really liked the economics of it. And these were the only people I knew that were free market. So I really loved it. On the other hand, it was very cultish. If you asked Ayn Rand a question like, well, on page 42 of uh, Alice Shred, you said this. Could you elaborate it on or tell us where you got the idea or something? That would be a good question and she'd answer it. But if you said on page 42, you said this, but on page 923, you said that and I see a contradiction, you know what she would do? She would say, get out. And she was serious. She wasn't joking. She'd kick you out, and she'd kick you off of her mailing list and say you're a hooligan or something like that. So I would leave in disgust, and then I'd come back in six months because I didn't know anyone else who favored free enterprise, and they were the only people. So I'd come back, and then I'd be disgusted. And and meanwhile, I had enough of Henry Haslow's economics and one lesson in me uh, that I uh, I wasn't sure – I knew that I wanted to promote liberty. And I wasn't sure whether the best vehicle for that was philosophy or, or economics. So I- All right, told- all right,
0: no, well, let's, let's stop right here. I want to back up a little bit. Okay. Did these conversations actually begin the night or the, the day of that lunch? Did they start talking to you over the lunch?
1: Not they, just Brandon. Brandon came to the other end of the table. Ayn Rand and Peekhoff and um, Greenspan stayed where they were. So it was okay. just, just me and Brandon. At- and
0: how long did that go on roughly?
1: Well, the whole hour, the whole lunch hour.
0: okay. And so did you walk away from that lunch thinking, uh, they'll never convince me? Or did you walk away thinking, well, I mean, it's tougher to argue with them than I thought it would be?
1: Oh, no, I was uh, pretty pushy. Uh, They'll never convince me. This is all BS, you know, Uh, free enterprise is horrible. And, you know, we have to go socialism and socialism is more gentle and and more egalitarian than the usual. He didn't convert me that first time. Now, had you come to those
0: kind of conventional views just through osmosis? I mean, not because you were subscribing to the socialist worker or whatever.
1: Correct. Just osmosis. Everyone was a socialist, and I never really thought about it that much. As I said, I was interested in girls and sports. And, you know, uh, I don't know. Uh, I was interested in chess also, but just peripherally. Uh, my main interest then was, was not politics, and but everyone was sort of a socialist. I mean, if you weren't a socialist, uh, it, the issue never came up because I never heard of non-socialists except for Ayn Rand.
0: Was it the books more or the conversations that changed your mind?
1: Both. Atlas Shrugged. I mean, Atlas Shrugged, what is it, 1,200 pages? I read that thing in one weekend. I couldn't put it down. It was magnificent. I've read it every 10 years since then, and I got more out of it every 10 years afterward. Uh, I love that book, and uh, so if you ask me which was it more, the book or the conversation, and Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, my god, that is, that is magnificent. So I would probably say maybe two-thirds the book and one-third my conversations with Brandon and Rand and Peekhoff and, and uh, Alan Greenspan and other people like that.
0: Do you – I mean this is a long time ago, right? I mean what, what year is this? This is 1964?
1: 1964, right, 1964, so maybe I can forgive you.
0: If your if your recollection of the precise details is a little fuzzy at this point. Right. But but is there any are there any moments that you recall of Ayn Rand speaking to you in particular? I mean, was she patient or impatient? Was she condescending?
1: Was she friendly? Like what is your impression? Very, very friendly. Very friendly. Exceedingly friendly. Uh, as was, they were all very friendly. There was no, uh, you're an idiot for you know not being a capitalist. Uh, very, very friendly. I mean, but you know, they would say, well, you know, uh, your view on the minimum wage is we have to raise the wage. But what about you know this, or what about what Hazlitt said? And by this time, you know, reading those two books really got me maybe two thirds, maybe three quarters. But Brandon and Rand were very, very kind and very courteous and very supportive, not like the, the Rand that you see on stage or on TV interviews where she was tough. It, it's sort of like with neophytes, they're very gentle. But if you then agree and then you become a, a turncoat or you disagree with them on anything, uh, anything, and, and even, uh, you know, taste in music, you know, like uh, they like Rachmaninoff and, uh, uh and I like Mozart and Bach. And uh, and, and then the atheism, you know, the story with Murray, why Murray and she broke because Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand, was very gentle with Murray. Uh, uh, she said, I'll give you one year to convert Joey into, uh, atheism and then you have to divorce it. But he gave her a whole, she gave him a whole year. Uh, but then again, Murray was on the inner circle. So she was tough with him, but with me, I was just a baby and with babies, they, they babied me. Okay. Fair enough. So did there come a time
0: when, at least on the economics – I get the rest of the objectivist baggage wasn't interesting to you – but on the economics, was there a time when you said to them, all right, listen, you've converted me? I mean, did, was it was it that explicit that you actually said you win?
1: Oh, yes, yes. I thanked them uh, for converting me, and then he invited me to come to the NBI, the Nathaniel Brandon Institute Lectures. Oh, I was – I was never in the inner circle, but I was in the – outer circle, but I was, you know, part of the gang, and I thanked them for converting me, and I was very uh, grateful to them. Uh, they had opened my eyes, and, you know, I I, I was then a limited government libertarian, not an anarchist. Okay. That came a little later with Murray, but
0: um, yeah. uh, I was- Okay, t- yeah, but before we get to that, so was there then a time when you, yeah, so you weren't in the inner circle, but they knew you, and they probably were interested in how your academic career was going. Did anything happen where you had a falling
1: out with them? Well- It wasn't a falling out. I never said, never darken my door again. It's just that I never, um, I didn't go, you see, I I would have this approach avoidance. Every six months, I'd go back for a month and then I'd leave and then I'd come back. And then when I met Murray, I, I never went back there.
0: Ah, okay, okay. So now let's talk about that. What are the circumstances under which you met Murray Rothbard? And what were the arguments he made that made you abandon limited government libertarianism for the more radical variety?
1: Right. Well, I was taking master's in, in philosophy and in uh, in uh, economics because I wasn't sure which way to go. And then finally I decided it was economics. And then I um, I, I was taking philosophy at City College, at Brooklyn College, and economics at City College. And then I decided economics is the way to go, and I enrolled at Columbia. And I met this guy, Larry Moss, who was a, a, an intimate of Murray. And uh, Larry Moss said, you must meet Murray Rothbard. Your views and his are very similar. And uh, Murray's an anarchist. And I said, what? An anarchist? I don't want to meet an anarchist. Anarchist is crazy. And uh, uh, Larry and his uh, roommate, Jerry Wallows, ganged up on me. I remember we were standing on a sidewalk one day, and and they somehow ganged up on me and said, you must meet Murray. And and finally, I agreed. I'd meet Murray. And I met Murray, and he converted me to... um, anarchism in about five minutes well maybe 10 minutes uh it was uh i mean you know to meet ayn rand was was you know in in the reader's digest they once said uh, who is your most unforgettable character well brandon and rand were really unforgettable characters but murray is unforgettable squared or cubed or whatever um murray was magnificent what he did you know in karate what you do is you punch the other guy in in um in uh, uh, what's that other one? Judo, what you do is you use the other guy's momentum against them. Namely, he charges you and you throw him over your shoulder, but you use his momentum. That's what Murray did to me. He didn't use karate, he used judo on me, intellectual judo. Namely, he used Henry Hazlitt's arguments uh, on armies, courts, roads, uh, police, things like that. He said, well, look, you know, you see why we shouldn't have a post office, uh, a government post office, because, you know, uh, exit, you know, if a post office does a good job, it'll increase its, um, uh, uh, market share. If it does a bad job, it'll lose money. It'll have to leave. Other people will become post offices. Why wouldn't that work for, um, uh, police? Or why wouldn't that work for roads? Or why wouldn't that work for courts? And I couldn't answer it because he was using Hazlitt against me. Boy, Murray was nasty. I'm, I'm kidding, of course. So Murray converted me uh, using Hazlitt's arguments on uh, armies, courts, police, and roads and other things that a minarchist wouldn't agree with.
0: Okay. So now you're converted along those lines. You wind up going into economics. You get your PhD from Columbia University. And then you had you've had a fairly interesting academic career because not only – well, you know what? Before we get into that, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, Let's pause for a quick message. Folks, the year 2020 shows up a lot in science fiction, and a lot of predictions about the future turned out to be wrong. I mean, no flying cars yet, I'm afraid. Look, the truth is we'll always get the future wrong, which is why we need to get what? Life insurance right. That's where Policy Genius can help. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can be comparing quotes from the top insurers, finding your best price. You could save $1,500 or more a year just by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy, they can also help you find the right home and auto insurance or disability insurance. I've used it myself, and the process couldn't possibly be easier. So if your science fiction dreams for 2020 still haven't become science fact, don't get discouraged. Get life insurance, be responsible. It takes just a few minutes to find your best price and apply at policygenius.com. PolicyGenius will always get the future wrong, better get life insurance right. Okay, let's get back to what I was saying. You have an academic career that's obviously very distinguished in the sense that you've published an almost unthinkable number of academic articles and you've collaborated with many other scholars, but you have moved from one institution to another. And I wonder about the kinds of troubles you've run into in ter- because of your ideas or, I mean, how would you describe, you know, academia and how it's treated you and what you've seen over the years?
1: Well, uh, I didn't get tenure until I was 60 years old, which is not good. Uh, usually people get tenure, you know, they get their PhD at age, oh, I don't know, 30 or 28, and then six years, six years later, at age 34 or 35, they, um, they get tenure. Uh, I uh, went to many, many schools, but I was I, I was sort of mouthy. I would challenge my um, tenured colleagues through a debate because they're a bunch of commies, pinkos, and uh, Marxists and Keynesians. And you'll never imagine this, Tom, but they didn't really like me kicking their butt. And I didn't get tenure. Uh, I taught at State University of Stony Brook. I taught at Rutgers Newark. I taught at the Baruch College, and then I was uh, twelve. And I got fired there, finally, because uh, I could only write about stuff where Mike Walker and I agreed on. And, you know, he agreed on uh, minimum wage and free trade and rent control, but not much else. And finally, what he said is your next book is going to be on government and, and it's going to be positive. The, the benefits of government, I said, Mike, this is going to be a very short book. And he said, no, 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 I'm serious. you got to write about the, the how great government is. And I started looking for other jobs and then he fired me for looking for other jobs. Uh, then I went off to, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Holy Cross, uh, six years and I didn't get tenure there, but I had good debates and I kicked some butt there. And then I was at UCA, University of Central Arkansas. And, uh, I probably wasn't going to get tenure there either. And then this job here at uh, Loyola opened up and I applied for it and I got it. Although they offered it to Don Boudreau first, but he somehow didn't take it. He went to George Mason and then they offered me this job. And I was then uh, 61 years old or 60 years old. This was in 2001. And I came in with tenure. I tell you, if I didn't have tenure here, I'd have been fired one month later. They would have realized, my God, what did we allow in here? Guy favors free <laughs> enterprise? This is uh, intolerable. Well, um, I'm exaggerating. Because Bill Barnett, my colleague and friend, and many times co-author helped me get that job. And he was pretty mouthy also. So um, uh, I got that job here. So I've had a rocky uh, career. I mean, I have about 600 referee journal articles and almost 30 books, and I don't know how many op eds, um, maybe 10,000. I'm not sure. I don't count them. Uh, So, in a sense, I've been very productive. But in terms of success, well, now I'm successful. You know, I have an endowed chair. I make almost 200000 a year, and I have a very light teaching load, So, uh, and this is for the last 20 years. And, I, and, and another part of my success is I must have maybe a dozen former students of mine who are now professors of economics and promoting liberty. So in some sense, it's a success, but in some sense, it's a dismal failure. I mean, to get tenure when you're 60 years old is uh, not exactly a successful career.
0: Well, to me, the output is what characterized the successful career, but I understand what you're saying. As you look back on it now, is there anything you feel like you could or should have done differently uh, in your academic career? And then the second part of this question is, is there any advice based on your own experience you would give to up-and-coming scholars?
1: Yes, I have a, a, a former student of mine who just got his PhD, and he's now at a very prestigious university. And he said, uh, you know, I don't really want to talk to you because I don't agree with you fully. And I said, okay, fine. We won't talk for six years. You get tenure and then I'll, I'll rope you back into the one true faith. What I should have done is kept my big mouth shut. I shouldn't have published anything that was controversial. I should have published, you know, some econometric thing about the elasticity of bananas or something and shut up and got tenure. Then I I would have had a much better career. But no, I I uh I was too mouthy, I was too pushy. I'm still pretty pushy. And uh my my mistake, if I wanted to have a better career and get tenure when I was 34 instead of 60, would have been uh you know to to be nice and and uh, amiable and and not be divisive. So my advice to young people uh, you know, Murray used to say the best time to become an Austrian is uh, right before you get your PhD, because if you get it too soon, then you start arguing with your professors and you don't get your PhD. I would just add one more and say the best time to get converted to Austro-libertarianism or if you're converted before to keep keep your big trap shut is uh, right, you know, one week after you get tenure.
0: Ah, uh, okay. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably pretty sound. Now, let me, let me ask you to try to look at all the work you've done, and you just described it and tried to quantify it, and it's just overwhelming. But if you had to survey this vast avalanche of work you've done and narrow it down and say, I think the two or three most important things I've done, most important contributions or insights, or even even just popularizing an argument that wasn't well-known, even if it's not original to
1: you, what do you think they would be? What are you happiest with? Well, you know, uh, it's interesting. When I got here, I had 200 articles. I now have 600, so I've done 400 in the last 20 years. And I look back at what I did before I got here, and virtually all of it was in law reviews and and libertarian journals, very little in economics, a little bit in economics. I mean, my PhD is in economics, and I teach economics, but my heart is more with libertarian theory. Uh, So I I don't think I've really made any uh, contributions to economics a little bit here a little bit there criticizing this guy criticizing that guy maybe i did something with diminishing marginal uh, productivity um very little in economics but in e- uh, but in philosophy or libertarianism or law uh there's where i think i've made more of a contribution uh i think my biggest contribution is um voluntary uh, slavery abortion um and maybe uh, privatization i uh, it, I have made some contributions in economics: uh, privatizing roads, privatizing uh, rivers and lakes, and privatizing um, uh, what uh, space. And also um, blackmail. And um, uh, I've done a whole book on blackmail. A lot of what I've done, like Murray Rothbard, had one sentence in, in uh, *Man, Economy, and State* on uh, blackmail, and I wrote a whole book on blackmail. Uh, Murray, uh, in, in a sense, uh, my entire philosophical legal career is sort of uh, climbing on Murray's back and getting a piggyback off of Murray. I think the reason I've been successful is I picked Murray and I got up on his shoulders and he gave me a piggyback and I stood on his shoulders and to uh, to some extent, uh, I credit, to a great extent, I credit him uh, for um, inspiring me, uh, helping me, uh, being my friend. Although I have one criticism of Murray my big criticism of Murray is stomach cramps. You sit in Murray's living room and all he does is keep you deliriously laughing for hour after hour and I get stomach cramps. That's my big uh, my big criticism of Murray Rothbard.
0: Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's not a bad criticism to have. And <laughs> I, I I only got to meet him a few times, but man, his personality just dominated whatever room he was in and not in an obnoxious way, but it was just that, for example, I remember being at an event where, somebody was talking about the evolution of the James Bond character. This was the early 1990s. And that he was now, you know, with the Cold War over, now he was going to morph into some kind of creature who was going to defend, like, the United Nations or something. <laughs> and and Rothbard shouted out, No! <laughs> he was so <laughs> horrified at this. I mean, from the audience, he shouted this out. That was his sort of personality. So what I want to do then for the rest of the week is look at some of this work that you've done where you really have tried to fill in a lot of areas where there either wasn't much done or wasn't anything done to show that libertarianism can in fact solve whatever the problem is. I mean, it's it's not to say that you therefore get a quote, perfect society. There are always going to be problems, but it doesn't mean that uh, you need to use organized violence to solve the problems or to, to address them. So- we're going to spend the next couple of days talking about Defending the Undefendable, Volumes 1 and 2. A lot of people don't know there's a Volume 2, so now they will. Then I want to talk about your run-in with the New York Times. And then in the last on the last day of Walter Block Week, I'm just going to throw a bunch of these unusual sorts of topics at you and get your thoughts. So we're going to wrap up episode number one of Walter Block Week right here. Thanks, Walter. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.
1: Uh, Tom, let me just add two more things that I'm very proud of. One is my stuff on sociobiology, the uh, why is it that if we're right, why there are so few libertarians, and the other is the economic freedom index that I started when I was at the Fraser Institute. Thanks again for having me.
0: My pleasure. Yes, and I'm glad you added those two things. So I'll put some stuff up. I'm also going to put a link to Walter's website. Walter's website is walterblock.com, and if you go there, you can look at this gigantic collection of uh, articles, some of which are available online, but you can get that bibliography, that, that CV available there. All right, Walter, we're going to pick this up again tomorrow.
1: Thanks again for having me, Tom.
0: All right, folks, that's going to do it for the first episode of Walter Block Week. So fasten your seatbelt because the next couple of episodes, we are indeed digging into Defending the Undefendable by Walter Block. So make sure you have subscribed TomWoods.com slash Apple, so you're getting all these episodes delivered to you automatically, and I'll see you then. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.